Well, have you ever found yourself in a situation in life where you knew what you needed to do, you knew what you should and shouldn't do, but yet you did it anyways? Maybe you knew that it could cause a problem, or maybe there is some risk, but yet you kind of followed how you felt you needed to go. I don't know about you, but I mean, it happens for me, it seems like way too often. I think of one experience, I had a sports car years ago, and it was a little Nissan 240SX stick shift. The thing was amazing, and I, I found that it was really fun when I was driving down the highway to exit and Tokyo Drift. You guys know what I'm talking about? Any of you guys that might be Fast and Furious fans? So what I would do is I would basically wait to the very last second I could turn, and without hitting the brake, I would turn the wheel really fastly, and I would Tokyo Drift up the exit ramp and then slam on the brakes and stop. And I'm sure I look like a complete buffoon to everybody else around me, but to me and to hopefully my girlfriend, it was cool, right? Like it was, it was super cool. And I knew I shouldn't do it, but I figured out how to do it. So why not? What's the risk? Well, one night, me and my buddy Nate were out driving, and it just happened to be raining. And when I say raining, I don't mean Denver rain, right? Like once a year where it rains for an hour. I mean like Missouri rain, like cats and dogs rain, like somebody's dumping a bucket on your head every second kind of rain. And we're cruising down the highway, down I-70, and all of a sudden I'm driving and I know when you're driving on in the rain, you're not supposed to drive fast. And I know when you're driving on the rain, you're not supposed to make any quick movements. And I know when it rains, it's easy to hydroplane. But yet, I thought it would be a good idea to Tokyo drift up the exit ramp. And so here I am cruising down the highway way too fast for the rain. I get to the exit ramp, no brakes, and all of a sudden, jerk the wheel to the right. And you guys know what happened, right? 360s, hydroplaning, up the exit ramp. Now, if I had this on video, it would have been epic, right? I'd have a lot of views on YouTube, but thankfully there was no views, right? Because I would have for sure gotten in trouble. So anyways, here are Nate and I spinning 360s down the exit ramp. And we thought we were pretty cool guys. But at that moment, we were middle school girls, right? In the car, screaming our heads off as we go straight into the ditch. Now, we couldn't get it out of the ditch, so we had to wait till the next day. It dried out enough. We were able to drive out of the ditch. Thankfully, no tickets were issued, uh, no issues really from there. But we knew we shouldn't have been doing that. But yeah, we did it anyways. You guys ever been there? You'd be lying if you said no, right? We've all been there. We've all done it. And, and sometimes we can get away with it, like I did. Yet other times, there are situations where we look back in our life and we say, Man, that was a really bad idea. I knew better, but yet I still did it. And for you, you might look back and say, well, it was a career situation, or I spent money financially that I shouldn't have, or I walked away from a relationship that was a really bad idea, or I got into a relationship that was even a worse idea, and I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyways. So I guess what's the answer to our problem of why we do this? You know, Francis Bacon, Sir Francis Bacon, was an English philosopher and statesman and uh, really a famous author. And he, he wrote this one time, and I think we agree with this idea. He says this. He says that knowledge is what? Power. We've all heard it. And he's right. Like, knowledge is power. And that's why I think as a culture, a society, we want to uh, improve education. We want everybody to have an opportunity to learn. And knowledge is power. But there's something 
more than knowledge that's necessary, isn't there? Theodices, he was a, a Greek historian. He, he, he wrote this. He said that knowledge without understanding is useless. And they're both right. They're, they're both right because we need knowledge. Knowledge is power, but if we don't understand how to use that knowledge or if we don't have an understanding on why or how or when or what not to do, then it ends up causing a lot of heartache and heartbreak in, in our lives. And I think here's the pinch point is we have to ask, ask ourselves, what is it in life that actually leads to understanding? We've got all kinds of knowledge at our hands, at our fingertips, but what leads to understanding? If you're a parent, you, you guys understand this. There, there, there's these times as a parent where you're continually telling your kids no, right? Anybody got two-year-olds right now, right? It's like, no, no, don't touch that. No, don't walk out in the street. No, don't grab that. No, leave that closed, right? No, put the knife down, honey, seriously. You know, I saw a great meme the other day. It was like, there's like a little, you know, purple crayon on the ground and the kid's like, I can't reach it. And then the kid's on like three chairs hanging on the top of the ceiling to grab a knife from the top, right? Like kids want to do what kids want to do. So sometimes you have to allow the kid to learn. So with our girls, we used to say, don't touch the stove because it's hot, right? How many of you have said that? How many of you have heard that, right? Don't touch the stove. Why it's hot? Why? Well, because you're going to get burned. But yet the kids just keep getting closer. Why don't they learn? How come they don't understand? Well, they need to get burned first, don't they? How many of you still have the scar from when you touched the stove? My, my, Hallie, my little one, I remember when she was little, we used to say, don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. It's going to get burned. And then she'd never listen. And so we, I mean, we didn't push her towards the stove, right? Like, <laughs> but we just knew it was going to happen. And so one day she burned her arm and was tearing and crying and terrible. And I'm like, dad giggling inside, like, you're going to learn. You're going to learn, right? I'm so sorry, though, honey. I'm so sorry. But that's how we all have learned, and we all have understood so, so much. But I think there's this reality that exists for us. Yes, getting burned on the stove opens our eyes, but yet how many of you guys still pull stuff out of the oven and burn yourself as an adult? I did the other day, right? Like, we think we're smart enough. Well, I'm just going to pull it out real quick. I'm just going to grab it with this, you know, this napkin, because that's a good idea, Right? I'm going to use my fork, right? Like, but we still do it. Why haven't we learned? And why haven't we understood? So I think there's this reality that exists in our minds and in our hearts sometimes that we, we enter life with these dreams, these big expectations, these big hopes, these, these big things that we want to see. And, and so we, we think, well, the next time it's going to be different. Yes, I got burned last time I touched the stove. But this time it's going to be different. This relationship's going to be different. This business deal is going to be different. Right? This financial situation is going to be different, and then it isn't, and we get burned again, and we wonder, what needs to change? And you know what it is that needs to change? It's us that needs to change. And so how do we change? And I wonder, what if God allows these experiences of letting the stove burn us to teach us something about ourselves, to teach us something that we really need? One of Jesus' best friends, his name was John. And John wrote the Gospel of John and First and Second and Third John and the book of Revelation. And I, I love how John starts off John 1. And I love to read it at Christmas because I think it fits so perfectly. Because John wrote his gospel later. And John had a chance to see Jesus' life. John had a chance to see the church be born. John had a chance to pastor. John had a chance to do all these things. And I think John, looking back at 
Jesus. And looking back at Jesus' life, he, he says something that really brings to life why Jesus came. And this is what our Heaven Came Down series is all about, to understand what Jesus says about himself. Because we can know about somebody, but we don't understand them unless we spend time with them and we understand what they said about who they were. And so notice what John says. I love this. Look with me real quick. You don't have to flip there, but we'll put the words on the screen. John 1.1. 1, 1. Notice what he says. He says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, what John is going to say, and we're going to see Jesus say today, is that Jesus is a light, a light that shines in the dark. And it's like reading a book in the dark. You might be able to make out some of it, but you're not going to truly be able to understand until it's lit. And we see that Jesus has come at Christmas to give us understanding, to light life, so we can understand really what it means to live this life of ours. So here we are, week two of Heaven Came Down, and I want us to, to look at one of Jesus' most famous I am statements. There's seven I am statements in the book of John, and this is probably my favorite in John chapter 8, verse 12. So if you're there, John 8, look with me. John 8, verse 12. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of what church? Light. John says the light came and the darkness cannot overcome it. And Jesus says that I am the light. Now, now, I think it would do us a disservice if we looked in to this text without really looking at the context around it. I think understanding setting is so important. You've heard us say this over and over. Context is key. Somebody say context, context. is key. We have to understand context. We have to understand the setting. Because I think when you hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world, you're like, that's cool, Jesus. But when you see Jesus say, I am the light of the world, in context of where he is, it becomes so beautiful and it opens up so much for us. So here in, in John 8, we actually have to learn what happened in John 7. So I'm going to give you a quick little background. In John chapter 7, we see that Jesus and his disciples travel to Jerusalem for the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. Somebody say tabernacle. So the, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the seven feasts that God told Israel to observe in the Old Testament. It was one of the three that they were to observe every year. And so people would travel to Israel or to Jerusalem, and they would go to this feast, right? And they would sing, and they would dance, and they would eat, and they would drink, and they would have a great time for, for eight days. And during this feast, it was really meant to remind them of how God rescued them out of Egypt because God knows that we are very forgetful people, right? Anybody here very forgetful? Like, I forgot something just now. Like, why we're just forgetful people, right? And so God knows we're forgetful. So three times a year, they're supposed to have these feasts. And they come together, and they have this feast, and they do all these cool things. Well, one of the things they did, which was really cool, was every day the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam. And here's the Pool of Siloam. It means scent. Um, here's a picture of it. It's dry now. But it was actually a tunnel that Hezekiah the king, at the time of Isaiah, um, forge that would send water into the temple. So the priests would go, they would dip a cup in the pool of Siloam, and they would pour it out on a basin, a stone basin. And this was done every morning, and this was done to symbolize how God, if you guys remember the story in the, in the, when um, uh, 
Moses was taking Israel out of Egypt across the wilderness, that they were saying they needed something to drink, and Moses struck the, the rock with the, the um, staff, and water came out, right? So this is to remind them, God brings water. God is the one that provides. And so it's at this moment one day where, where they're, they're all getting together, and it's thought that this feast takes place after harvest. So we're talking mid-September to mid-October. And one day, uh, all the people are getting together and uh, they're, they're, they're doing these things. And um, Jesus comes up and he says he's on the last day. Jesus walks up while they're at the stone basin, right? As the priests are taking this cup of water and pouring it on the, on the stone. And Jesus stands up and goes, everybody listen. I am the river of life, right? So he's standing there. Priests have water from this pool of Siloam, there's a stone base, and Jesus is saying in front of them, this river, it's going to one day dry, right? You see it's dry there. I, Jesus, am the river of life, and whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow living waters. He says this on the last day of the feast, day eight. So for eight days, they've been coming around and seeing this ritual, and Jesus stands up the last day. I am the river of life. Of course, this sparks like an argument, right? Some people believe in Jesus. Others are like, he's a prophet. Others are like, this guy is just a troublemaker. We need to arrest him. And so all of this happens on the last day, the eighth day. So this is the setting, right? Everybody's in Jerusalem. Now, one of the interesting things, the reason they call it the Feast of Tabernacles or, or booths is because people on their homes, they build these little like wood huts and they sleep in them this, on the eighth day. It's in this place that they're sleeping. So this is the eighth day. They're all sleeping in these booths. And then the next day, they, they, they get up. And, and every night during the feast, one thing they did was they would illuminate these giant candelabras. So here's a picture uh, of what we think it looked like. They were 75-foot candelabras, and they would light with oil. So it would be an oil lamp, and they would light them. And it was a, a, another thing to remind the people. So they were reminded during the Old Testament wandering, that God would lead his people by fire at night and by cloud in the morning. And so every night they would light these, and it was a really uh, awesome thing to see. It was right outside the temple in what they called the court of women, and it was what they called the illumination of the temple. And so they would do this every night. So for eight days, they've been pouring water. For eight days, they've been lighting these candelabras. Now, here's the picture, John 8. It's the ninth day. It's the last day of the festival's over. It's the last day, but people are still there. It's kind of like you leaving your Christmas lights up after Christmas, right? Like, how many of you take the tree down the day after? How many of you take it down in January? How many of you take it down in February? Like, be real. Like, there's a few of you. Like, I, I had a tree up one time so long that I couldn't, it was a, a real tree, and the trash day pickup I had already happened, so I just, like, left it up until the pine needles all fell, you know, like... Sometimes, it, you, some of you guys just leave your lights up all year, right? You're like, this is my 4th of July celebration tree, right? Like, whatever. So the celebrations are all up. The lights are all up. People are still there. They go to the temple the next day. This is day nine. They go to the temple. Jesus gets up really early. The lights are still, right, from these candelabras. And so Jesus gets up. There's this huge crowd around, 75-foot tall candelabras. Jesus stands right there and goes, hey, everybody, pay attention. He said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, remember the fire that these are supposed to represent that led you in the desert? Remember these candelabras that were supposed to give you light at night? He said, look no further, because I am the light. I am the one. I am the one who comes. 
I am the light that brings illumination and understanding and truth. I don't just bring knowledge, but I bring an understanding because I am the light of the world. And to the Jews who lived in this, they would have understood this. Like there is this picture that existed in in Jewish culture of, of light being good and dark being evil. We carry that through with us today. And so by Jesus saying, I am the light, he was telling the religious leaders that I am the one who was going to come, the one who was going to bring the light to the world, and the one who was going to fix what was broken. Because Jesus is using this image that we see all the way back in the very beginning when everything fell apart in Genesis chapter 1. You don't don't have to turn to Genesis chapter 1, but if you remember, what do we read? The very first thing that God inspired Moses to write in the Bible, Genesis 1, it says this, that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Read verse 2 with me. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. What was, what, what was the world like before, at this moment, it was, you see, dark and, and void and, and empty? And remember, we, we go back to our Genesis series. We're not asking 21st century questions here, right? We're just saying, what is God trying to teach us here? And that there's this emptiness, there's this void, there, there is this non-existence of life at the time. And so notice verse 3, what does he say? And God said, let there be what? Light. And there was light. So here's the setting. Jesus is at this feast. He shows up at this candelabra scene. And when all things are out, he says, I, Jesus, never go out. I am the light. And I do what light is meant to do. I'm the light of the world. I give life. So it's this picture of the condition of the world before light, Genesis 1, and it's the condition of our hearts without Jesus in John chapter 8, that before light enters our life, we're void and empty and really formless. But what happens when light comes in? It adds structure. What happens when light enters the void? It adds life. What happens when light enters the darkness? Darkness flees. There's a process to it. You know, I want you to think about this. Think about the way that our bodies work, right? Like, just think about, like, the way that God moves through history. Like, what, what is the way that God does? Thankfully, God works through a process. And, and so think about how life is born, right? We see that God gives light to creation. And then if you read the creation narrative, God adds purpose, and he adds people, and he adds animals, and he adds uh, mankind, all these beautiful things. Think about how God moves in our life. If your parents are, I think all of us started off in this situation, right? How did we grow as a baby after conception? What happens? Well, after we're conceived by week five or six, there's a heartbeat, right? Dun, 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 dun. By week six, our brain starts developing. By week nine, a baby has toes. By week 12, we have fingernails. It's kind of gross, right? But by week 12, you have fingernails. Babies are born, they start to crawl, they start to walk, they start to say no, right? Moms and dads, you guys get it, right? They start to tell you what they think, they, that they know more than you do when your kid gets about 8, 9, 10. I know I'm living it right now, right? Like, thank God he moves through process because we learn through process. And so this is what God does. He forms universes. He forms bodies and makes babies, and he works in your life the same way. Because as his light comes in, he takes what was void and empty and he brings life into it, into this beautiful thing. And so as we're being formed, that's when we start to grow, like a plant when light hits it. Now, I would guarantee that many of us in this room would say, 
look, Drew, I am nowhere where I need to be. Like, I should be farther along. I've been a Christian for such and such time. I should be farther along than I am right now. And I think we all would agree and say that, except if you're on the back row. We talked about that last week, right? But I did, like, the reality is, like, none of us think we're as far along as we should be. Like, we all wish we could just fast forward and be there. It's kind of like when you graduated from college, you wanted to live in a house and drive a car just like your parents. Because that's what you were used to. That's what you wanted. You wanted to fast forward time. We all want to be there. We want to be where God wants us to be. But thank God for the fact that we're in process, that we're not stuck. Because I think each of us, if you've said yes to Jesus, can look back and see there was a time when you were messier and more broken and more disheveled than you are now. And yes, like Paul says, I'm not yet what I want to be, but praise God, thank that I am not what I once was. And so God, when light enters our life, he begins to form us and change us. And this is the idea. Jesus' light in our life is what forms us and shapes us. Knowledge is power, but we need understanding. And for us to understand the world, for us to understand our lives, for us to understand why this world is broken and sinful, and us to understand how we're supposed to navigate relationships and work and careers and kids, we need the light of something bigger than ourselves. Because if we don't, we're going to keep going back to the stove. We're going to keep getting burned. We need somebody to teach us the true understanding of it. See, when we don't have light in our life, like the world before Jesus spoke light, we end up empty. And there's an emptiness that we try to fill all different types of ways. In John chapter 8, before we get to Jesus saying he's the light, I want to show you something. We skipped it, but I want to go back. If you have your Bibles, look. The beginning of John chapter 8, Jesus gets up early. Remember, the day before, he said, I'm the river of life. He's getting ready to say, I'm the light of the world. But before he does, he gets up early and he goes to the temple. And then there's a, um, a group of people at the temple. And then this group of Pharisees and scribes, they bring this woman to him. Some of you might know this story. They bring this woman to Jesus and they throw her at his feet. And she's all crying and dirty and snot bubbles and all kinds of stuff going on. And, and they say, Jesus, we just caught her in adultery. And the law says that someone caught in adultery should be stoned to death. Jesus, what do you say? The Pharisees wanted to catch Jesus in a double standard. See, reality was that the law did say if you were caught in the act of adultery, then to keep sin from just purging, moving through God's people, that you should, you should be punished for it. But yet these scribes and the Pharisees, they just grabbed the woman, which is kind of messed up, right? They didn't even grab the guy. They just bring the woman to him. And they throw the woman at Jesus' feet. And, and for sure, this woman had been living an empty life. For sure, this woman has been trying to fill the void that she feels because she doesn't have God's light in her life in a lot of different ways. And this was one of the ways. So they bring her to Jesus. And she's, this is for sure her darkest moment. Like, this is no doubt. Like, she is facing stoning. Like, this is the, the darkest moment of her life. And we see that the, the Pharisees are looking at Jesus. Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? And so... Here she is, Jesus, it says that he bends down and he writes something in the sand, in the dirt. The Bible doesn't tell us what, what he wrote. Some scholars think that Jesus was actually writing down the sins of the men standing in front of him. Like, isn't that crazy? Like, of course, Jesus knows all things. Could you imagine standing there and Jesus writing down, like, um, adultery, lie, right, covetousness. And so Jesus is writing in front of him and he stands up and he says, okay, yeah, I mean, you're right. The law does say that. He says, okay, well, you without sin, you cast the first stone. And Jesus bends down, he starts writing again, and 
The Bible says, John says that, that starting with the older to the younger, they drop their rocks and walk away. I feel like it, it, there's something there. Like the older we get, the more we realize how messed up we are, right? Like when you're young, you're like, someday I'm going to have it all together, man. Like when I'm 50, 60, 70, I'm going to be nailing it. And then you get 50, 60, and 70, you're like, man, I wish I was 20 again because I am just a mess. Like we just realize there's more junk the older we get. And so it says to the older to the younger, they walk away. And Jesus looks down at her and he says, where's your accusers? Are they here to condemn you? Does nobody condemn you? And she looks at Jesus. She's like, I guess not. And he leans in and he says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. It's beautiful. Jesus is getting ready to tell us that he's the, the light of our lives. But right then, he, he's telling her something that he wants us to see. And it's this, that Jesus, in our darkest moments, he brings light and life. That Jesus leans in. He's, when the light of Jesus is, is, is available to you, and he wants to shine that light brightest in your darkest moment. When you feel unworthy, when you feel like you've messed up, when you feel like you've screwed everything up, when you feel like there's no hope moving forward, Jesus brings light and life into our darkest moments to show us the answer to our emptiness. The answer to our emptiness is not replacing one relationship with another. It's not more money. It's not more satisfaction. It's not more fame. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. The answer to our emptiness is the light of Jesus. And so Jesus, in her darkest moment, in her emptiest moment, says, go and sin no more. Here's my light. Let it change your life. How's God using your dark moments right now? How is God speaking and leaning into some of those, maybe those sins you just feel like you can't get rid of or some guilt or shame that you've been carrying with you for years? How is God's light leaning and shining and revealing and saying, let me fill your heart and your soul because nothing else will? Friends, let Jesus shine his light into your life. It's on this that all of those guys walked away. There's this huge crowd. Jesus standing in front of the candelabra says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of life. And it says that in that moment, many believed. The, the Pharisees, they, they really didn't like what Jesus had to say. They started to say, Jesus, are you, are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus says this crazy thing. I don't have time to unpack it. But he says this. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they like pick up the stones that they were going to stone the woman with. And they're like, well, we're going to stone you because Jesus was claiming to be God. Not just light, but also God. The two are mutually exclusive together. They work as one. And so Jesus like hides himself, totally like Harry Potter, you know, like cloak of invisibility or mind trick, you know, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And Jesus like walks out of the temple and gets away before they can throw any stones at him. And then John 9, I want you to see this. Don't, don't miss this. We're not too far from being done. And so Jesus, rather than letting things cool down, he just declared that he's God. He just declared that he's the light of the world. He just declared he's the river of life. Jesus walks outside of the temple. And wouldn't you know it, there's a blind man sitting right there. Remember, he just said he's the light of the world. Watch what he does. So he walks over. Look at, flip over if you have your Bibles open. John 9, look at this, just the very first verse. He says this. There's this, as he passed by, like immediately after walking out of the temple. Like this is all like boom, boom, boom. He walks by, he saw a man blind from birth. And notice what his disciples ask. They get like theological on him. They say, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So, so in, we do this today, by the way, but in Jewish culture, there was this belief that, that like if you were born with a disability, it was somebody's fault. 
right? It was your parents' fault they sinned, or it was your even, they had this like prenatal view of sin, which is weird, that, that you know, you could even sin in the womb. I, I don't, nobody understands that, but this was kind of a view that the Jews had at this point in time. So they asked this theological question. They don't say, hey, Jesus, can we heal this man? And they say, Jesus, whose fault is it that that guy's blind? This theological question. Don't we want to talk about stuff sometimes rather than doing anything about it? You know, like, oh, whose fault is it that they're living in a trash dump? Whose fault is it that they don't have anything? How'd they mess up? Who really ruined their life? Jesus is like, don't we want to do something about it? Like, let's just not just talk about it. So that's what Jesus says. It's so good. He says this. He says, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but the work of God that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, we don't have time to talk about this. This is a podcast thing. But what Jesus is saying is huge. He's saying that... Yes, there's consequences for our sin in life. Yes, you mess up. You do something really stupid, you might lose your job. You do something really stupid, you might lose your marriage. You do something really stupid, you might lose your retirement. Yes. But what Jesus is saying is that this broken world we're in, it's not the result of because I sinned and God doesn't love me. It's the result that we live in a sinful world that was broken in Genesis chapter 3 and that all of us are born broken and sinful. It's just the state of man. But Jesus says, I have come to repair what has been broken. Look at this. He says this. He says, this man didn't sin. That's not why he's blind. His parents didn't sin. That's not why he's blind. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Notice this. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day because night is coming when no one can work. Verse five, check it out. Here's how he ties it together. And as long as I am in the world, I am the what church? The light of the world. He just says again, I am the light of the world, and I come to take all the brokenness that exists because of sin and this broken world, and I come to mend it, and I come to fix it, and I come to show you that I actually want to use the weakest part of you to show you my strength. See, in this crazy upside-down kingdom that Jesus came to bring, there's these crazy upside-down things like the fact that God wants to highlight what is weak in us to demonstrate how strong he is. Isn't that crazy? Like we, we want to show how good we are, how strong we are, so people love us, respect us, value us, promote us, friend us. Jesus said, no, it's your weakness, actually, that lets my strength come through. And that means, guys, that that thing about you that you don't like, that, that thing about you that you wish was different, that thing about you that you wish God would take away, like Paul said, with the thorn in the flesh, that is the thing that God wants to use in your life to show you his strength so you can see his love, grace, and mercy. How upside down in that and how fulfilling is that, that God's light wants to show you your weakest part is where he is strongest. I wonder if there's a situation in your life right now that you wish was different. This blind man wished he could see. What is it that you wish was different in your life and how is God wanting to use that weakness to show his strength. So notice what he does. This is beautiful. So verse 6, it's having said these things. Notice what Jesus does. This is really, really kind of weird. He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. So I, Jesus like literally like bends down and like, right? Like hocks a loogie. And then makes little like mud balls. And then puts him on the guy's eyes. Now, thankfully, he's blind. He can't see, because if it was you and me, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what are you doing? That's gross. Like, how many of you guys, when you see blood, you just get, like, sick? Or you see, like, you know, somebody puke? 
for me, it's spit. Like somebody spits and I'm just like, ah, you know? Like, so I wouldn't have, I've been like, Jesus, I'm cool, right? I'm good, good, right? I don't need to see. <laughs> but anyways, so he like puts mud on this guy's eye, which is weird. Why? Why did he do that? Some scholars think that he's recreating Genesis 1, right? Or in Genesis 2, where, where God is the creator. And so he uses the dust of the ground to make Adam. So he uses the dust of the earth to make light, to give light to this man so he can see. So that's just pretty cool. Another idea is that Jesus just healed people differently all the time. Like sometimes he'd be like, hey, go wash. And on the way they're healed. And sometimes he'd be like, hey, your dude's healed 20 miles away. And sometimes he would, you know, tell you to walk. Or sometimes he'd put spit on your face. Like, you know, like this is the way it was. We don't know why he didn't necessarily, but, but notice what he does. He tells the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Where did we just hear that at? Once, two chapters before, right? When he says, I'm the river of life. What is he saying? He's saying, look, I'm going to bring light into your life because I am the light of the world, but I want you to obediently go to the river and wash so you can see that I'm the river of life. See how he ties the two together? Isn't that awesome? He ties these two things together, these two declarations of who he is together in this man's healing. And so there's this, this idea, guys, that like obedience is the prerequisite to God's grace to be seen. You realize that God may be already moved in your situation. You just don't know it yet because you haven't followed. Like God may have fixed that broken situation that you wanted to fix, but you don't know because you've been waiting for somebody to knock on your door. God says, go wash. Jesus says, go and wash. And he washed and he came back seeing. See, Jesus shows us that light gives way to sight. Reality is we're all blind, spiritually blind. We all think we can figure it out. The next time it's going to be different. We're not going to get burned on the stove. But we need the light of Jesus to reveal that, no, it's seeing life the way that he sees it through his light that gives us the understanding to live life. Real quick, let me finish the rest of the story. So the guy goes back. His neighbors are like, oh, my gosh, is this Joe? I thought he was blind and, and you know, whatever his name was. And he's like, yeah, it's me. And they're like, no, it can't be you. Well, up until this point in history, nobody's ever give, been given their sight. Like, this is the first time in the Bible anybody who was blind now sees. And so they bring him into the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are like, who, who, who? Who did this? They call his parents in. They're like, are we sure he was blind? And the parents are like, I'm pretty sure. But he's grown up. You can ask him for yourself. He's like, what happened? He's like, well, this man named Jesus put mud on my eyes, and I went and washed, and now I can see. And they're like, well, we don't like Jesus. He's a bad guy. Couldn't have been Jesus. It had to have been something else. Give glory to God. He's like, look, here's all I know, is that I was blind, and now I see. It's actually that verse that John Newton wrote the famous song, Amazing Grace, from little tuck that in your hat later, right? And so they get mad at him, and they kick him out of the synagogue or the temple. They're like, you're a sinner just like he is. Get out. Now this man's been, this man's been his whole life just wanting to see so he can go to the temple. He gets the sight, goes to the temple, he gets kicked out. Now he's like outcasted from society. It's crazy. Notice what happens next. This is so good. So Jesus finds him. Isn't it so good that Jesus is always seeking after us? He's always pursuing us. He's always coming after us. It's so good. So verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out and having him found him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? And this guy's like, well, who's that? Like, I don't know. Who's the son of man? And Jesus is like, well, you're looking at him. He's like, yeah, I believe. I believe. He says, Lord, I believe. And it says he worshiped him. Notice Jesus didn't say, do you believe in the son of man? And I'm going to heal you and give you vision. Do you believe in the Son of Man? I'm going to put these weird little mud situations on your eyes, and you're going to be able to see. He gives him sight so he can see his spiritual blindness. And then Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, yes. 
because I need you. Guys, here's the beautiful thing is that we, when we see our spiritual blindness, Jesus is pursuing after us and he's right there and he says, I'm right here, guys. Say yes to me and you will be able to see. You will be able to understand. You will have life. Reality is, guys, each of us need to have our eyes opened because we are spiritually blind. The question is, can we look back and say, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. So the question I want to ask you guys is, have you seen the light? Has Jesus' light enlit your heart and your soul and your mind? And you realize that he is what fills the emptiness. And he is what brings light in the darkness. And he is what takes what was formless and brings structure to it. I want you to notice what Jesus does and then we're done. Invite the worship team back on stage. So, so Jesus always does this. This is what Jesus does. He's so great at this. He says this thing about himself, and then he turns it around to us, right? And so I wonder, like, was it right after this situation that Jesus told his disciples that they were the light? Look what Jesus says. He says, I'm the light of the world, and you know what? So are you now. Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, look what he says. Sermon on the Mount, he says that you, God's people, you are the light of the world. So, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Forefront, this is what Jesus says. He says that once you've encountered the light, go and be the light. Once you've had the light in your life, go and become the light so others can see that Jesus is the light. I'm going to close with a picture there's a picture of, uh, of a lighthouse. I had a chance to go to, uh, to Alaska on a work trip, and we were out in, in the bay, and uh, we were traveling out looking at whales and glaciers and all this kind of stuff, and there was this lighthouse. And, and in this lighthouse, this lighthouse was put in in the early 1900s, and the idea, obviously, is to give light to the ships, right? And so they flash every 12 to 15 seconds and they can be seen for miles and miles and they have these radio beacons that can be picked up from hundreds of miles away. Well, it's been hard to get lighthouse attendance. You know, it's not really a very fun job. The Wi-Fi is not good, right, out of these lighthouses. And, and so uh, these lighthouses have just gone dormant. And so what many countries have done, and this one's in New Zealand, is they've outfitted them with solar panels. There's actually 70 of these in New Zealand and they're outfitted with solar panels. They use the light of the sun to project the light on the water. And in this really cool way, I think what Jesus says to us, he says, I'm the light of the world, but now you go be the light. And just like that lighthouse with the solar panel, Jesus wants us to reflect his light, to let his light power us so that we can provide light to those around us. What better time for us to be the light than Christmas. Here in two weeks, people are going to be gathering around their Christmas lights, opening up Christmas gifts, spending time with family and friends, many of them walking through really hard times, and they're going to try to maybe put a smile on their face and enjoy a time with, with family. How can we be the light? How can you go and shine your light for someone this Christmas? Maybe you serve them. Maybe you invite them over for dinner. You take them a meal. You invite them to church. You share the light of Jesus 
in your life with them. The reality is this is a dark world. And Jesus came to be the light and now he calls us to reflect it. So who in your life is coming to mind right now that you can reflect the light of Jesus into their life this week? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he invites us to join him in lighting the dark. Would you pray with me?